know because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Like that's what we just sang about. Because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Y'all, I tell you this a lot. You can be anywhere else you want to be and you chose to be here. And because you did, I believe that God has a word for you. So I want to pray for you. We're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 6. Pray with me now. You guys take a seat and let's pray. Father, thank you that you are who you said you are. God, this altar, this, this place that we come to, we're coming to metaphorically because you really did do what we never could do. You really did live the life we could never live. You really did die the death we deserve to die. And you really did raise from the dead. Lord, sometimes I jokingly think the next time I raise from the dead, I can listen to myself. The reality is, is God, you're the only one who has ever done it. You put love on display when you stood in our place and you said to tell us die, it is finished. So what do we have to fear? What is holding us back from walking into your presence? You've already done everything necessary to save us. God, I pray that you would even forgive our unbelief, and that you would help our unbelief, to give us the eyes to see you for who you are this morning. Help us to worship you, because you're worthy of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, grab a Bible. Meet me in Matthew chapter 6. We're going through this series on the Lord's Prayer, where we're walking through practically. Listen, if the disciples took the time to ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, there's a couple of things you need to know. Number one is, they struggled too. Right? Think about it. These guys walked with Jesus every day of their life, and they struggled to figure this out too. Maybe, just maybe, we're not very good at prayer. The other thing you need to recognize is when Jesus teaches you something, you should probably listen. So here's, here it is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, he says. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And here's where we're going to pause today. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. There's no better story of forgiveness than the novel Les Mis. Now, this is me trying to show you my more sensitive side, because if my wife were in the room and not serving in kids right now, she would laugh when I tell you that that, I think, is the most horrible movie that has ever been made in the history of movies. And yet, the story is amazing. Jean Valjean, he goes to jail for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread And upon his relief, he gets brought into the house of a bishop who begins to take care of him. And then Jean Valjean does what he does is he steals all of this bishop's silver. And then when he's caught by the police, the police drag him back into the bishop's house and they confront the bishop and they say, did he steal your silver? What does he say? No, I gave it to him. In that moment, the forgiveness that Jean Valjean had experienced was the very thing that melted his heart and destroyed him in the best kind of ways. You see, it wasn't the harshness of a punishment that changed his life. It was forgiveness. He had felt the the unexplainable experience of love. And because he had felt that, he was never going to go back. The kind of love that was given to him forced him to feel a bit of indebtedness that changed the trajectory of his life. What I want you to see today is that Jesus is saying that forgiveness has the power to release you from bondage. Now, with that, here's what I want to recognize is forgiveness is incredibly difficult. Statistically speaking, it's nearly impossible. 
According to research, we, we apologize on average about four times a week, but we normally don't apologize to people who matter. 22% of the time, we apologize to complete strangers because that's just easy. Hey, I'm sorry I bumped into you. Man, I accidentally took your parking spot, whatever. 11% of the time, we apologize to our spouses. 11% of the time. And then 7% of the time, we apologize to family members. Do you know who the person is that we tend to apologize to the least or to forgive the least? Ourselves. Let me just ask you, why do you think that forgiveness is so difficult? Maybe you'd say something like, because they don't deserve it. Or, or because, man, they hurt me deeply. Do you understand what it would cost for me to forgive them? I'm not a doormat. Are you really going to let them get away with it? Like, who am I to let them get They need to be punished. What if I told you that Jesus said the root of our difficulty of forgiveness is that we really haven't grasped just how much we're forgiven? By the way, this stanza in the Lord's Prayer, this verse 12, it's the only stanza that's repeated twice in the Lord's Prayer, which means that you should pay attention to what it's saying. It's the only one that's repeated twice. Every other stanza in the Lord's Prayer is about God, not about us. This is the only one that has a response that's about us. So let's look at it again in verse 12. Here's what he says. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I want to walk through this line by line, word by word. Take note of this word and. That word and there is a conjunction that brings it back and connects it to verse 11. Wait, remember verse 11? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Notice what he's saying here. The tie is that your contentment, we talked about this last week, your contentment and your daily dependence on God is also tied to your daily forgiveness of God. That, that, that forgiveness is the tie that brings them together. You can't be content without receiving forgiveness. Here's what I mean. You aren't just physical beings that only need physically to be cared for. You're also spiritual beings that need to be connected to God through forgiveness if you're going to live a holistic life. God doesn't just care about caring for your physical needs. Your soul matters too. And both of those things matter. Like Jean Valjean, he didn't need more silver. What he needed was to experience the love of another human being. And that's what finally set his heart free. If you want to experience freedom, listen to me, you need to get two things. You need to get dependence and forgiveness. Both of those things are necessary. Y'all, forgiveness is the most powerful force on the planet. It has the effect that releases you from a prison that you tend to put yourself in, but it also has the power to melt the hearts of the people around you. I think, I think about the story of Corey Tinboom. If you don't know her, Corey was a Dutch girl who held or who hid Jewish girls during the Holocaust. And during this time, Corey Tinboom and her sister were caught by the Nazis. They were put into a concentration camp where they were both tortured and beat, and her sister was eventually killed by a guard in that concentration camp. Years later, Corey goes on a speaking spree of which she, she tells the story of forgiveness and how the gospel had absolutely wrecked her heart. After the story, or after her speech is over, a guy walks up to her and says, isn't it amazing that Jesus will forgive even the worst of our sins? And he puts out his hand, and in that moment, she recognizes that it is the guard who tortured her and killed her sister. Y'all listen to what she says. She said, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that. 
Forgiveness is an act of the will. The will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You have to supply the feeling. And so I thrust my hand out and I stretched it out to his. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulders, raced down my arm, sprang into the joints of my hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I forgive you with my whole heart, she said. Notice that in that moment, the forgiveness flowed to him, but it also released her heart from bitterness. I think about the story of the apartheid that happened after Nelson Mandela was released from prison. If you don't know anything about this, he set up a system where the white police officers could go and they could, they could confess their sins, ask for forgiveness, and if they did, they would not be prosecuted for their sins. One police officer went up to an elderly black lady in a courtroom and he confessed what he had done. He said that he had killed her son and burned him alive, quote, like a barbecue to dispose of the evidence and then he went back to that same house eight years later, dragged her husband outside in front of her, poured gasoline on him, and burned him to death while she watched. The judge looked at that lady, and she says, what do you want to do in the response to what he did? Here's what she says. She says, I want to go back to my house, gather up the dust of my son and my husband, and give them a proper funeral. And then she looked at the police officer, and she says, and I forgive you. But I don't just forgive you. I want you to come to the ghetto twice a week and I want to adopt you as my son. Y'all, if you haven't gotten it yet, the only thing that's powerful enough to change the human heart is forgiveness. Martin Luther King Jr., darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Is there anything more loving? Is there anything more powerful than forgiveness? Check it out again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now that word debt, take note of this, it's a really fascinating word. Debt literally means that you are, you're so in debt, think about the creditors that come after your credit cards when you're past due, you're so in debt that now you become a slave to a creditor. What's fascinating to me is that when the gospel of Luke repeats the same exact prayer, he does not use the word debt, he actually uses the word sin. When you put those two concepts together, debt and sin, you actually get a picture of what Jesus is talking about. Sin, it's the Greek word hamartia. It's an archery term that was used to express as an archer would pull back a bow and an arrow and he would shoot, he would miss the mark of the perfect bullseye and they would say hamartia. That was what sin was. Sin was not you doing bad things. You have to understand this. This is the greatest misconception in all of Christianity. Sin is not doing bad things. Sin is a condition of the heart that separates you from God. It's who you are. It's that you have missed the mark of perfection, so you are outside of God's perfect will. And then he created these laws that are summarized in the Ten Commandments that are meant to be a mirror back into your own heart to show you that you need a Savior. Think, think about it. It's the ultimate litmus test of your righteousness. Real quick, since it is our ultimate litmus test, let's walk through them. Let's look at them real quick. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The idea here is that you've never put anything ahead of God, anything. Like you've always perfectly obeyed God. You've always perfectly done his will no matter what. 
Most of us, if we're honest, would say we don't do that one. We're 0 for 1. You shall have no idols. Like I've told you before, an idol is simply a good thing that you've elevated to a God thing and it's put into a position to where you now rely on it. Maybe it's your kid's success. Listen, this is the one, don't tell anybody. For a lot of people, it's ministry and serving, right? It's good things, but now it's your idol. Whatever you put in your life that you elevate to something that you depend on for joy in your life, maybe it's your spouse or your job or money, you fill in the blank. It is an idol. My question for you is, have you ever had anything in your life that you depended on for joy other than God? Over to. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That means you call yourself a Christian and you don't act like it. I've told you this before. Taking the Lord's name in vain is not saying GD. It's literally calling yourself a Christian. Like if I got married to my wife and she took my last name low, but then she went out and she wed herself to somebody else. She has taken my name in vain. See, the, the, the idea here is, is there any moment in your life where you have failed up to live up to the name that you possess? Do we even need to talk about this one? 0 for 3. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Listen, do all of you guys take one day off to rest and worship God? 0 for 4. Honor your father and mother. Now, scholars will tell you that you can extrapolate this out to pretty much say honor any authority figure in your life. Let me just give you one. The sitting president of the United States, no matter who he is, do you always honor him? Over five. Do not murder. Some of y'all are like, I got that one. That would work out really well until Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount redefined what he said about murder. And he says, if you've ever hated anybody in your heart, you have murdered them. How many of you murdered somebody in your heart on the way to church this morning? Don't answer that question. Over six, do not commit adultery. Again, Jesus would tell you if you've ever lusted after somebody in your own heart, you've committed adultery. The idea here is that your motives, watch this, your motives matter just as much as your actions. Over seven, you shall not steal. Have you ever stolen time at work? Huh? You ever told your boss you're working, but you're actually hanging out at the pool? You ever stolen a candy bar as a kid? Did you ever fudge on your tax deductions? 0 for 8. Do not bear false witness. Some of you are lying about these Ten Commandments right now. 0 for 9. Do not covet. Y'all, the other day I was walking through the Halcyon and I saw a black G-Wagon and I almost lost my salvation on the spot. We all want something that somebody else has. Whether it's the promotion or your kid's success, you fill in the blank. The point is, if you're really honest with yourself, in God's litmus test, you are 0 for 10. You don't get any of them right. Yo, your righteousness, though, here's the beauty, is it's not weighed on a cosmic scale of your good and bad deeds. I, I mean, even, even if it were, listen to me, this is so important. Well, then your standard for good has to come outside of yourself. It cannot be subjective. It has to be objective. And that standard is God. Listen, y'all, God created you to live a perfect life. And we don't even get one of these things right. Now think about it. Listen, literally everything in you is bad. This is a great sermon, isn't it? Very encouraging. I'm not trying to be mean, but, but you have to stop judging yourself against your own standards of right and wrong. Matter of fact, here, here's the crazy part. Whenever you do judge your own, yourself by your own standards, you actually put yourself in the position of God, and you can never even live up to the standards that you put for other people. So again, let me just ask you, could you even live up to the standards? Could you hold yourself to the same standards that you, that you hold your neighbor to? 
Check this out. Paul says it like this, because I'm going to get real encouraging. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not one. Pretty harsh. You know why I did that? Because you'll never understand the power of forgiveness until you understand just how much you were forgiven. See, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That means that every single one of us has a common problem called sin, and every single one of us has a common Savior called Jesus. When Jesus says that we need to have our daily debts forgiven, it's because your accounts are in the red. If you think that the garbage happening with the debt ceiling right now in America is bad, you have no idea your debt ceiling and how much infinitely worse it is. Now, with that in mind, I want you to catch what Jesus says. He forgave your debts. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just say, try harder. He said, it is finished. It's actually the Greek word that you should memorize, tetalistai. It is the most a beautiful word in all of scripture, tetalistai. It is finished. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is that he paid your debt. See, the debts have to be paid. They're just not forgiven. They have to be paid. Jesus called the creditor, God himself, and he paid your debt. Here's what you have to understand. Grace is free to you, but it costs God everything. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German philosopher said, we've got to stop selling people cheap grace. You know, your life was so costly that the God of the universe stepped off the throne in heaven and he put on flesh to die in your place to pay the debts that you owed. Here's where good theology comes in, all right? Let me explain it to you like this. Now, theologians call this the hypostatic union, meaning that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Let me just tell you one of my pet peeves. He was not 100% God and 100% man. I know what we're trying to say here, but he wasn't. That wasn't 200% anything. He was fully God and fully man. And because he was fully God, that means that he was able to live the opposite life of Adam. So I've explained this to you before. If Adam was able to be your representative head, meaning that when he sinned, he was able to impute or give you all of his debt, that's important because that means that Jesus was able to be your representative head, which means that he was able to impute or give to you all of his righteousness. And because he was fully God, that means that he was able to be the only perfect human being that ever lived without sin. And yet, he had to be fully man too. If Jesus wasn't fully man, then he couldn't live your perfect life because he wouldn't be a perfect substitute. Jesus was fully man. Do you know what that means? That means he experienced all the temptations that you do. That means he had all the hurts that you have. That means that when he fell down as a five-year-old and scraped his knee, it hurt. He was fully man. Because Jesus was fully man, he was able to be your substitute. The idea here when he said it is finished, he said that he could step into the gap to do what you never could do because he was those things. He took the punishment that you deserved. Now, why does all of that matter? Here's why. If you get that, like deep in your roots of the soul of your being, it's got to change who you are. Like you can't receive that level of forgiveness and not be changed by it. How do I know that? Look at the connection. I told you it's the only verse that's repeated twice. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Look back at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. You notice that. Let's go on to the next one. As we have also. 
That's continual. Like we're doing it. It's not something we're going to do. We have also forgiven our debtors. Do you know what he's saying? Jesus is assuming that if you understand forgiveness, then there's no possible way that you can't be a forgiving person. You can't be changed by something like this and not have it change you. Here, write this down. Forgiven people become forgiving people. That's the point. Again, it's the only verse repeated. So look at it in verse 14. I want to connect the dots. For if you forgive others their trespasses, Jesus says, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Here's what he's saying. Your ability to forgive is the proof that you've been forgiven. It's not that forgiveness is a prerequisite to being forgiven. It's that you can't possibly accept or receive forgiveness and not be transformed by it. I mean, imagine that today I showed up 15 minutes late to the sermon. So which means I probably walked in at the same time as a lot of you. And, <laughs> and, and I walk on this stage and I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry I'm late. On my way into church today, I got hit by a semi. Man, it threw me out of the front seat of my car, and then I got ran over by another car, and it was a real struggle, and I had to get myself up and get cleaned up and get to church. He'd be like, what are you talking about? You're such a, there's no way. Like, what are you, are you an idiot? The reality is, is you can't be impacted by something like that and not be changed. And the way that Jesus describes the gospel is there's no way that you can be hit by a force like the gospel and not have it change you in the same exact way. Do you get what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake. He, I've explained this to you, for our sake, he, that he there is God, the Father. God the Father made him, that him there is Jesus, to be sin, which means he absorbed all of your sin, who knew no sin, which means he was perfect and righteous, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how powerful this verse is? That for your sake, notice that Jesus didn't die for his sake, he died for your sake. For your sake, Jesus became sin. For your sake, he absorbed all that so that you could be made perfect. Y'all, if somebody took a bullet for you, you would be indebted to them. Jesus didn't just take a bullet. He was the only innocent human being that took the cosmic punishment of God in your place, the eternal punishment so that you could be made righteous. You see, you have to feel how indebted you are to God if you are going to experience the true freedom of what forgiveness has. It's powerful. Let me just ask you, have you received this gift from God? Not, 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 not do you understand it intellectually, but has it moved from here to here? See, because my big fear in the cultural South is all of us know this story, but have we received it? Have you, like the police officer in South Africa, stood before the king and confessed your sins and asked him to forgive you? Do you know, do you know if you've got it? Do you know if you've got it? Do you know if you understand the gospel? You know it? You know it? Anybody? If you're a forgiving person. See what he's saying? See the connection? Those who are forgiven become forgiving people because it changes your heart. Is there anybody you refuse to forgive? Is there anybody that's gotten you so gripped that you can't do it? Let me give you three practical ways or three practical things you need to know about forgiveness. All right, here's number one. First thing you need to know is that you need to receive forgiveness. That's the point of this passage. Forgiven people become forgiving people because there's power in knowing that you're released from your guilt and shame. You know, there are a lot of us holding people hostage around us 
Because honestly, we're afraid to embrace our own unconditional love from God. We live in the guilt and shame. I've said this to you before, and I need to say it to you again. There's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less because it's not dependent upon what you do. You are released from that bondage. It's dependent upon what he did. You know how powerful it is to know that God forgives you. You don't have to feel that shame anymore. And I know some of you feel that shame. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, here's what I love is when Adam and Eve decided to sin, listen to me, here's a couple important things. Adam was supposed to represent his family and care for them, but he abdicated his responsibility and he sat by like a coward as Satan tempted his family. I, I think this is one detail that we often miss is that Satan is called a snake or an animal in the scriptures. Right before that, God the Father tells Adam, hey, you have dominion over all the animals. He should have told him to sit down, shut up, and keep his mouth closed in front of his wife, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He abdicates his responsibility. Sin enters the world. God comes to Adam and he asks him one of the most profound questions ever. Adam, where are you? That's not like he didn't know where Adam was. He's asking you the same question. It's not like he doesn't know. He needs you to confess. Hey, where are you? Adam, what does he do? He blame shifts, blames Eve. Eve blames Adam. They blame Satan. What does God do? You know what God does? He killed an animal, made clothes, and clothe their shame and nakedness. Martin Luther, the great theologian, called this the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first. Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel. It's the very first essence of the gospel, that even in your guilt and shame, God sacrificed himself more than an animal, became your ultimate sacrifice, and clothed you with his righteousness. See, in the gospel, you don't have to feel guilt and shame anymore. There is power that comes from that that will change you from the inside out. If you ever want to be the type of person who can forgive others, you first have to receive the unconditional love from God because unconditional forgiveness makes forgiveness possible. Understanding the gospel is what will bring hope to the world. If Jesus can forgive you, listen, you can forgive yourself and you can forgive others. You will either live in your shame and guilt for the rest of your life or you will be clothed with the grace of God. And he wants to clothe you with the most powerful force on the entire planet. Here's number two. You need to know that forgiveness has a cost. Here's what I mean. True forgiveness, it's gonna cost you something. Like true forgiveness is not cheap. It's not just sweep it under the rug and move on with your life. No, you're going to have to absorb a cost within yourself if you're ever gonna forgive anybody else. And that might mean, that might mean that some of you gotta let some things in your past to go. Y'all told you this story a million times. My, my family, uh, I did not grow up in the quintessential Christian home. My dad was abusive. My mom was addicted to drugs. Um, there came a point in my life that I had to ask myself, can I actually receive the forgiveness that God gave me and then release people from their bondage that was actually holding me captive to? It cost something. It was hard. It hurt to let those things go. Now, I need you to hear me say this as you do that, because some of you need to know this. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation in the Bible. I also need you to hear me say this. We, we use that as a scapegoat. The Bible is pretty clear where reconciliation is possible. You should always pursue it. And yet it's not always possible. Sometimes you have to forgive to release yourself from that bondage. 
Here's a few ground rules that I need you to remember, because when you talk about forgiveness, this can be tricky. If you are physically unsafe, you should not go back to that vulnerable place, okay? If a person has committed an egregious sin, they should not be allowed to enter into those spaces. Let me just tell you, you hurt a kid, you're never going to serve in city kids here. You're forgiven, but you're not serving back there. You get what I'm saying? If a person has broken the law, you should call the authorities. These are just simple things. We do not advocate that you cover up things or remain in abusive situations. You can forgive and be safe at the same exact time. Now with that, you need to know that forgiveness is costly, right? If if you leave here today and somebody hits your car and you forgive them, somebody's still got to pay for the damage on the car. You've got to absorb the cost. In the same way, if somebody ruins your reputation and you forgive them, you're going to absorb the cost of ruining that reputation. But I love the way Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. This is when he says, I'd rather be wrong than have to justify myself and put the name of Christ in a bad position. Are you willing to be wronged? Are you willing to be wronged to win the person instead of winning the argument? It's an important question. Because in my experience, There's nothing in the world more powerful than forgiving people that don't deserve to be forgiven. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did for you? By the way, do you know what happens when you don't forgive? There's a great episode in the Three Stooges that goes like this. There's this time where Mo Mo keeps hitting Curly. He's hitting him in the chest. And Curly gets this great idea. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to strap a bomb to my chest so that the next time he comes and hit me, it's going to blow his hand off. Listen. Watch this. Choosing not to forgive someone will hurt them, but it will destroy you. Here it is. Write it down. Forgiveness is costly, but unforgiveness is deadly. Y'all, one of the most profound things I've ever learned is this. I rarely, I got ahead of myself. Number three. Here's number three. Put it up on the screen. Forgiveness is a choice and not a feeling. I rarely feel like forgiving people. Maybe I'm the only one, but I feel the injustices. And look, I'm not talking about trivial things. I'm talking about real stuff here. I feel that in my soul, I don't want to forgive you. Here's the deal, though. Forgiveness is a choice. Feelings of freedom only come after the act of forgiveness. If you wait until you feel like forgiving somebody, guess what you're never going to do? You're never going to forgive them. This is, this is what happened to Corey Timboom. She couldn't do it. But as soon as she stuck her hand out, what did Jesus do? Infused her body with feelings. She didn't wait until she felt like doing it. The moment she did it, something happened. Y'all, I had to practice this on Friday. I had to practice receiving forgiveness. So um, this week I was I took a flight to Winston-Salem for some meetings, and I'm walking down downtown Winston-Salem after lunch, and there's this lady, and she's got a stroller, and she's struggling to get out the door of the restaurant. You know, you ever seen that? Like, I got four kids. My wife sometimes, she's like a, a Navy SEAL with kids all over her trying to get through a war zone. Well, this lady, she's struggling, and I do what any decent human being would do. I open up the door to, for her. To my amazement, I was crushed as I looked down at the stroller. And it was one of those dog strollers. And a cat was inside of it. I was like, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have opened that door. I should have kicked it back shut. 
the true injustice that she did to that poor cat? Pretty sure God didn't want to forgive me, but he did anyway. Pretty sure he was like, that's not what I envisioned that cat's life to be like. Diabetes were never supposed to be transplanted to animals, and then you put them in a stroller. (laughs) Y'all, too many marriages and friendships are destroyed because we dig in our heels and we're not willing to forgive the people around us. We wait until they deserve it, and they never will. Tim Keller. When you forgive someone, you're not saying, all my anger is gone. What you are saying when you forgive is this. I'm going to treat you the way that God treated me. I remember your sins no more. That doesn't mean that you don't actually recall them. It means that I'm not going to act on the basis of them. They're not controlling reality in my life anymore. That's only possible when you're compelled and controlled by a love that's greater than that. See, some of you are waiting until that person repents to extend forgiveness. You say things like, yeah, but I can't move on. I can't move on unless they acknowledge what they did wrong. Do you know how big of a lie that is? Do you know how I know that's not true? Jesus didn't wait for you. Even while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't wait and say, man, in the moment that Derek cleans up his life, I'm going to die for him. That's not how it works. Listen, there's, there's nothing there's nothing like the gospel. There's nothing like knowing that you, are, you aren't inferior anymore. You are deeply loved by God. And at the same exact time, you're not superior anymore because you are deeply separated as a sinner and only saved by grace. Are you starting to see why Jesus said that your forgiveness to others is tied to your ability to receive forgiveness or to understand it? how can you not forgive the people around you if you understand the gospel? Y'all, it's a choice. It's a choice. It might be a difficult choice, a really difficult choice, but at the end of the day, your ability to extend forgiveness to other people around you has everything to do with your ability to understand the gospel. William Cupper, he said it like this, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. Matthew 18, Jesus actually tells this parable that, that really drives this point home. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Listen to what he says, verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. One of the things you got to understand is that seven times was a lot. Peter thought he was actually being radical in his ability to forgive. And then, then, then listen to what he says. I, I mean, this is so important because, because many of you, if you're honest, you write somebody off the first time they hurt you. And, and Peter looks at him and he says, hey, what if my brother, that's a Christian, by the way, that's one of your, your fellow brothers that he's talking about, sins against me. Y'all, that's real injustice. And I forgive him seven times. At what point should I just do this and be done with him? Jesus says, no, 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 bro, you don't get it. 77 times, which is a euphemistic way of him saying continual forgiveness forever and ever and ever. Peter, I'm not letting you off the hook, bro. You need to forgive him and never stop forgiving him. If you're not connecting the dots yet, parables are stories. Listen to me. You have to understand that Jesus is telling you that he will never stop forgiving you. 
No matter how many times you mess up, his love is unconditional. That's the point of this parable so far. This is what Jesus' audacious commandment is. If God will never stop forgiving you, don't you think that you should continue to extend forgiveness to others? Y'all, that's a supernatural thing, and that's the point. It's not possible if you don't understand the gospel. If you don't have the Spirit of God infusing you with a power to forgive, it will never happen. But if you do, you have no excuse. Now, Jesus tells a story after this. He says, Peter, euphemistically, you need to forgive forever, unconditionally, forever and ever and ever. But let me give you a story of how this works. Verse 23. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, wrap your mind around this. This is a kingdom ethic. If you belong to God's kingdom, if your citizenship is in heaven, this belongs to you. The kingdom of heaven may be compared, he's making a comparison, if you live in God's kingdom, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Again, get the point, God wants to settle your accounts. Here's what he says. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Historically speaking, a talent would have been about 6,000 denarii. You're like, I don't know what that is. Great. That's about the equivalent of 20 years worth of wages. Okay, that's one talent. Here's what he's saying. It was an insurmountable debt. He owed so much money, he would have been infinitely indebted and never able to repay it. So when the king or God the Father came to settle the debts, the debt that was owed by you was so insurmountable that you would never be able to pay it. You get what he's saying? If you haven't figured it out yet, you owe a debt so impossible to pay back that it would never be possible. You could work for the rest of eternity trying to repay your debt and it would not matter. But an infinitely loving God who is infinitely righteous can pay an infinite debt. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. That's what religion will do. Don't get it twisted. One day if you stand before God, and Jesus doesn't pay your punishment, you're going to have to pay the bill. And you can't pay it. So God ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had so that payment could be made. The only thing that can settle an infinite debt is your life or Jesus' righteousness. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Do you know how laughable that statement is? That's what religion does to you. It convinces you of the dumbest thing ever. That servant couldn't repay his debt. He knew it and everybody else knew it. Your good works aren't going to measure up if you approach God like that. It's laughable. But listen to what he says. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. That's the gospel. Right there. Notice that the servant, the only thing he did to have his debts released was ask for forgiveness in that moment. Did you know that the only prerequisite to receiving the grace of God in your life is the humility to ask? Verse 25. But when that servant, the forgiven servant, the one who had received grace, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. So now we're talking about one another, right? We've gone from vertical to horizontal, the vertical relationship with God has now been taken care of. So the horizontal relationship, what did Jesus tell you? The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love one another. Remember that? Vertical and horizontal. So now he goes out to another one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
Just to put it into context, that would have been about four months of wages, significant but not insurmountable, okay? Here's the point. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down, same exact thing, pleaded with him, same exact thing that he did with God, have patience on me, same exact words, and I will pay you. What did he do? He refused and he went and he put him into prison until he could pay the debt. You know what you should be thinking right now as the reader? What a jerk. What a jerk. How could he have his infinite debt forgiven and treat somebody else like this? I think that's the point. I think God is sitting here saying this should rock your world, that you should be sitting back thinking, when have I done that? Verse 31, when his fellow servants, the people in the church, saw this, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Of course they were. They went out and they reported it to their master. They told it to God, all that had happened and all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of your debts because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debts, meaning you're never going to pay it. So also your heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know what that means? That means that you can say empty words, but you still hold grudges. Y'all, this may be a difficult concept, but listen to what God is saying. How in the world could you not forgive one another if you've been forgiven by me? Forgiven people are forgiving people. That's the point of the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Can I just pause for a moment and ask you, have you received this forgiveness? Here's what I want you to know. You will never become the kind of person who can truly forgive and isn't controlled by bitterness until you until you. Receive and embrace this profound reality. You aren't any better than anyone else on this planet because in front of an all-loving and all-powerful God, you are completely at the mercy of his free gift given to you. And yet, you don't have to feel guilt and shame in this world because that same God loved you so much that he forgave your debts. He carried your guilt and shame and made them his very own. And in his steadfast, that might be the other most important word in all the Bible. In Hebrew, it's this hased, never-ending, unconditional, never-stopping, never-changing, steadfast love for you. When he died, he declared, it is finished. Y'all, the gospel is the starting place to the Christian life, but it's also the entire thing. You don't graduate from the gospel. You go deeper into it. I'm telling you, if you will embrace this, that Jesus paid your debts and made them his very own, if you will embrace his unconditional love for you, you will become the kind of person that releases people from their bondage. And it's not easy, but it's possible. 
Let me land the plane with Tim Keller again. He says it way better than I ever will, but it's really, this has been helpful for me. He says the secret to really changing is this. It's not enough to say God is a loving God and I have broken his heart. That is too abstract. Jesus was on the cross looking at all of us and saw us denying and betraying him and yet in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, Jesus stayed. He saw what we are like and he stayed on the cross. When you see Jesus dying for you like that and you know the reason that he died is because the sins you do every day, you will want nothing to do with your sins. Thomas Chalmers, the the famous Puritan, called the explosive power of a new affection. See, the key to a changed life is embracing the freedom that's already been given to you. Jesus loved you till the end. He stayed, and that changes everything about you. Greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for a friend. See, the gospel compels you to love because he first loved us. What if, what if today was the day that you received this greatest act of forgiveness? Y'all, I know, we don't, we don't do this very often. But they're gonna sing, oh, come to the altar again. And here's my challenge for you. Like, I, I know it's uncomfortable. But some of you, Jesus says, hey, before you do this, some of you need to come, before you give your gift to the altar, you need to go and ask your brother for forgiveness and then come and receive. What if today, as we sing, oh, come to the altar, whether it be your chairs or the altar, you take moment and you, if there's somebody that you need to forgive, and listen to me, and that's including yourself. If there's somebody you truly need to forgive so that you can be released from that bondage, what if today was the day that you brought it, laid it at the altar, let God forgive you, worshiped him, and moved on? So I'm going to invite the team up as I pray, and then I want to boldly ask you to release someone from, forgive, uh, from their indebtedness. And again, that might be yourself. Maybe today's the day that you finally receive that gift from Jesus and you forgive yourself. Father, it's only in your wise, good plan that we can be the people that you've called us to be. It's only in your grace and mercy that we can be forgiven and become forgiving people. God, I want you and I need you and I'm asking you to do a supernatural work right now in this room and in our lives and in our hearts. I know my own life. And I know if it wasn't for that day, 10 years ago, driving down I-40 in Raleigh, that you probed my heart and told me to call my dad and forgive him. I know that I would still be entrapped in bitterness. God, I know that some of my brothers and sisters in this room are struggling. They're even wrestling with right now the bitterness and the shame that they feel from their own life or the bitterness and the shame they feel from the injustices that they felt from somebody else. And God, I pray that they would release them. Knowing that vengeance belongs to you, you are our great king. You will make all things right. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. You will do cosmically what needs to happen. So God, would you help us to trust you, to take our refuge in you. Whatever needs to be laid at this altar, whatever needs to be forgiven today, I pray that today would be a day of freedom. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.